The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Humankind has forever been fascinated with the concept of immortality. It's no surprise then that the oldest surviving work of fiction from some 4,100 years ago tells the epic of Gilgamesh, who engages on an arduous quest to seek immortality. Ancient Greek mythology has an extensive list of mortals who obtained immortality from the gods. Immortality makes an appearance in Middle Ages Chinese literature, such as Feng Shen Yanyi, dating to the Ming Dynasty. Many rulers of ancient China are said to have sought a fabled elixir of life, and tales from numerous cultures regarding the mythical Fountain of Youth have been told for at least the last 2,500 years. A trip through 20th century literature that visited the subject would be extensive. At least since Maurice Nicole, under the pen name Martin Swain, gave us the 1918 novel The Blue Germ, Immortality has been a widely considered topic in speculative fiction. Of particular note to our discussion today, the blue germ revolved around two scientists that discover a germ which combats all human disease and aging. Introducing it into the water supply of a major city as an experiment, they are successful, but along with immortality comes some unexpected, unattractive side effects. Other works considered the topic George Bernard Shaw's Back to Methuselah in 1921, Carol Chopik's The Macropulo Secret in 1925, 
and Aldous Huxley's 1939 novel, After Many a Summer. Then, in 1964, author James Gunn published his novel, The Immortals. James Gunn had been a professional writer since 1947, pinning stage plays, radio scripts, and newspaper articles. In 1949, he sold his first science fiction story to pulp magazine Thrilling Wonder Stories. Over the next several years, he sold 10 stories to various sci-fi pulp magazines. His 1961 novel, The Joymakers, was well-received, and he was an attendee to the 1968 World Science Fiction Writers' Convention and was amazed at the wide interest to non-writers the convention had. The interest was underscored by the fact that some 1,500 readers attended the convention. I don't know of any other literary field where the readers go to the writers' conventions. In The Immortals, drifter Marshall Cartwright sells his blood to make money to buy alcohol. Researchers find his blood carries immunities to all disease, even to the aging process itself, and that a transfusion to another person bestows temporary improved health and restored youth. The story then examines the ramifications this would have on humankind, as well as what it would mean if it fell into the wrong hands. For those with wealth and power, such as the wealthy Weaver and those like him, nothing will stop them from pursuing Cartwright to own the miraculous effect his blood gives. The remainder of the novel reveals the dystopian world that evolves into the medical haves and have-nots, the ragged and dirty and diseased inhabitants of the cities, and the offspring of Cartwright, kept for bleeding purposes for the elite. Some who keep themselves immortal this way become emperor-like rulers, such as Governor Weaver, who has set himself up as the ruler of Kansas. Two years after The Immortals was published, Gunn was approached by writer Robert Specht. Specht was a story editor on ABC's primetime soap opera, Peyton Place, and previously had written for The Outer Limits. His 1964 episode, Fun and Games, featured a pair of strangers teleported to a distant planet for an alien gladiatorial contest. Specht was interested in securing the rights to The Immortals and got his Peyton Place producer, Everett Chambers, involved to sell the story to a studio as a motion picture. Gunn, however, was incredulous at the idea. I felt it was unfilmable because of its lengthy time span. When my agent wrote me and said, I have a couple of guys here who want to take an option on the motion picture rights, my initial reaction was, how are they possibly going to do it? Chambers Inspect shopped a story proposal to every major studio, but was rejected at every turn. However, a story editor at 20th Century Fox gave them a tip that they might get more interest if the story was altered into an action-adventure-chase storyline, and Specht rewrote the film Prospectus, while a disillusioned Chambers dropped out of the project. Specht's revision resulted in an immediate sale to Paramount. However, instead of a theatrical film, they felt it would be perfect for ABC's brand new Movie of the Week. The Movie of the Week. The Immortal thus enjoyed the status of being the second of 254 ABC Movies of the Week that would be produced. Rat Patrol star Christopher George was cast in the lead, along with Carol Lindley, 
Barry Sullivan, Ralph Bellamy, and Jessica Walter. This 90-minute TV movie aired Tuesday, September 30th, 1969. Ben Richards is a 43-year-old man who enjoys his routine life, test car driver by day and loving fiancé at night. One day, however, Jordan Braddock, the elderly billionaire owner of the corporation he happens to work for, is by chance given a blood transfusion of Richard's donated blood as part of medical treatment following a plane crash. Braddock makes a miraculous recovery, and it is then Richard finds he has a singular advantage over other men. He seems to be immune to every known disease and does not age at the rate of normal humans, with the capability of living five, perhaps ten times the normal human lifespan. Periodic transfusions of his blood can give other men a second, a third lifetime, perhaps more, but the effect is temporary, necessitating repeated transfusions to continue the effect. Dr. Pierce, who discovered Richard's blood properties, lays out to Richard's what this means. His blood will be in constant demand by the rich and powerful, who will stop at nothing to possess it and him. Pierce's recommendation, run before it's too late. Failing to follow that advice, Braddock kidnaps Richards and fakes his death, with the intent to keep him a comfortable prisoner for the rest of both of their lives. Escaping his prison with help from Braddock's sympathetic but self-serving wife, Richard goes on the run for months until finally agreeing to allow his fiancée to see him again. However, she was followed, and this leads to a rooftop standoff where she is shot. Richard's blood heals her, but he now realizes as long as Braddock and others want what his blood can give them, he and those he loves will never be free, and he must remain an anonymous fugitive. He must also make an effort to find his long-lost brother, who may also share the same immortal blood properties, and will also likely be pursued. Ben Richards will live longer than anyone has ever lived, but a transfusion to the wrong man could make him a prisoner for all time, and so he runs from the hunters, the human hounds who would cage him. The telefilm closes with the voiceover narrative. Dr. Pierce was right. I've got to run far and fast. While I'm doing it, I'm going to try to find my brother. Wherever he is, he's got to be warned. Warned that Braddock is looking for him, waiting to throw him in a cage and drain him dry. Whatever happens to me finally, Sylvia, wherever I go, I want you to know I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you for as long as I live. The Immortal aired following The Mod Squad on ABC against The Red Skelton Hour and The Governor and JJ on CBS and Julia and the NBC Tuesday Night at the Movies, which was premiering Don Knotts The Shakiest Gun in the West. The Immortal earned a 20.3 rating, placing 18th in the Weekly Nielsen's. Produced by Paramount Television and filmed over the course of 20 days for a budget of $500,000, The Immortal had excellent production values for a TV movie, much better than later movies of the week that ABC would themselves produce that would be shot over five or so days for a much smaller budget. 
Christopher George was excellent in the lead role as Ben Richards. Kara Lindley as Sylvia, who would return once in the series. Barry Sullivan was not very recognizable as billionaire Jordan Braddock. Only 56 at the time of filming, a lot of less-than-convincing old-age makeup was used, perhaps one of the weaker points of the film. There were a couple of great supporting performances, too. Jessica Walter as Janet Braddock, quite disappointed with her husband's miraculous recovery. And Vincent Beck as the exercising health nut, Locke, that was Richard's jailer and pursuer. The movie of the week was positively reviewed by critics, such as Percy Shane of the Boston Globe, who said, For a science fiction chiller, loaded with suspense and realism, you'd have to go far to beat movie of the week's second world premiere presentation, The Immortal. And Kay Gardella of the New York Daily News said it was a better produced, better acted film than most. The Immortal tied with Gunsmoke for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Film Sound Editing and was also nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography for a special or featured length program made for television, losing to NBC's Ritual of Evil. It was also up for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation but lost to the TV coverage of Apollo 11. The Immortal was approved for series the story of which we'll get into later in Behind the Scenes. Practically a full year later, ABC's mellow invitation to viewers was, Let's Get Together. Among the new shows, the warm voice of William Schallert, promoted to debut that fall, were Dan August, alias Smith & Jones, The Odd Couple, The Partridge Family, and The Immortal. This fall... We've got a lot to share. New shows, favorite shows, stars who will brighten your nights. So come on, let's get together. We've got a lot to share. transfusion, seemingly void of hope, delivers a miracle. I never saw anything like it. He pulled one hand free and tried to tear the tent. I'm getting younger. Donor, Ben Richards. I'd like to run some tests on you at the hospital tomorrow. Diagnosis, immunity to all disease. You're immune to another very common disease of mankind. A disease we call old age. Oh, come on. You're going to stay that way for a very long time. Well, how long? Could be anywhere from five to ten normal lifetimes. You're almost immortal. Now we know you're the only source. You alone. You're a walking fountain of youth. If men knew you existed, they'd fight over you like dogs over a bone. My advice to you is to run. Run. Run, 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 run. Episode 1, Sylvia, aired September 24, 1970. The opening sequence, running a full two minutes, explains the series' premise and again uses the telefilm score composed by Dominic Frontier. This man has a singular advantage over other men. Ben Richards is immune to every known disease, 
including old age. Periodic transfusions of his blood can give other men a second, a third lifetime, perhaps more. Find Ben Richards. The effects of a transfusion are only temporary. I must therefore control Ben Richards' life permanently. He's the most valuable man in the world, but he's no good to be dead. His brother may have the same kind of blood. We've got to find him before Richards does. If you had million-dollar blood, where would you hide? I didn't ask for this. I was a test driver. I liked the job. One day the doctor told me I had some kind of special blood. I don't understand it, but I know this. Everything they're offering, I don't want. I gotta live free. Ben Richards will live longer than anyone has ever lived. But a transfusion to the wrong man could make him a prisoner for all time. And so he runs from the hunters, the human hounds who would cage him. When Richards' former fiance becomes engaged to another man, this brings him out of hiding and onto the radar of another billionaire, Arthur Maitland, who has designs on Richards and his blood. Richards manages to evade his new hunter, Fletcher, and says goodbye to Sylvia a final time. Glenn Corbett guest stars, and Carol Lindley returns in her final appearance as Sylvia. This episode introduces Don Knight in the role of Fletcher, who would be the primary mercenary hunter of Ben Richards in the series. With it having been nearly a full year since the original was shown, ABC reran the TV movie on September 15th, again in the Tuesday Movie of the Week time slot. Series episodes were placed on Thursday nights at 10 p.m. 9 central against the CBS Thursday Night Movies, and The Dean Martin Show on NBC. The incredibly long opening sequence containing not only a standard theme song, but also about 70 seconds of voiceover exposition by narrator Paul Fries explaining the series' premise was a result of test audiences not comprehending the backstory of the first produced episode shown to them. From Paramount's production number, Sylvia appears to have been the sixth episode produced, but was bumped to air first. It seemed far too early to revisit Richard's fiancée again so soon, with the ending seeming like a complete rehash of what viewers had just seen in the pilot movie. But moving this episode to air first was at the direction of ABC. Carol Lindley The producers called me and said I had to appear in the first episode. I asked why. They said the network wanted Sylvia to be killed off in the first episode she was not, so that Chris George's character could have a different girlfriend week after week. I first said no, because my part, which wasn't big in the TV movie, was even less here. They literally wouldn't accept no for an answer, and cajoled me into appearing in that episode. 
Yes, Sylvia writer Robert Malcolm Young was asked by producer Anthony Wilson to rehash the pilot movie's basic storyline, concluding in such a way that made it clear Richards was now free for new romantic adventures. A one-minute scene was tacked onto the beginning of the episode, introducing Fletcher and Maitland to the story, and the first episode actually produced intended to end Jordan Braddock's storyline and turn things over to Arthur Maitland was kicked down the schedule and reworked. Episode 2, White Elephants Don't Grow on Trees While on the run from Fletcher and his men, Richard stumbles onto a man and his son repairing their pickup who mislead the pursuers. Richards helps them drive their beat-up truck, transporting some volatile chemical canisters, but their destination will put him right back into the hands of Fletcher. This one guest-starred Ross Martin, well-known for his role as Artemis Gordon on The Wild Wild West, and young Mitch Vogel, who had been in films Yours, Mine, and Ours and The Reavers, played Jamie on Bonanza and Johnny Johnson on Little House on the Prairie. Ed Begley Jr. also pops up in one of his earliest roles. A decent episode that begins and ends in extended chase sequences, well directed by Michael Caffey. The opening actioner looked to be shot on location at a refinery and lasted nearly four minutes without any dialogue. I was surprised by the crane and even helicopter shots, and we had a truck sequence down windy California mountain roads, reminiscent of the 1953 film The Wages of Fear. Mitch Vogel was 14 at the time of filming. The production number of the episode places that likely in July of 1970. Although he doesn't recall exactly where it was filmed, he told Forgotten TV, The things that stick out on my mind are, first of all, I remember it being very hot. I really enjoyed working with Christopher and Ross. They were both extremely nice to me, and I remember being impressed by Christopher, his attention to detail, and Ross's sense of humor. All in all, I just remember having a great time doing that show, and I was sorry it didn't run longer. Episode 3, Reflections on a Lost Tomorrow randomly hearing a medical researcher on TV making claims about longevity being related to properties in human blood, Richard gets a janitorial job at the researcher's clinic. Revealing himself to the doctor, Richard submits his blood for testing in hopes of replicating the longevity effect. However, this is complicated when Maitland himself shows up, extremely interested in the doctor's research guest-starring the well-known Jack Albertson and Rosemary Forsyth. This episode reminded me a lot of how the Incredible Hulk episodes would play out when David Banner would get a lowly job at random research labs where he might be able to get help for his condition. Of course, that series bears more than a passing resemblance to this one, as we'll discuss in the next segment. Episode 4, The Legacy On the Run in New Mexico Ben and a young female teacher gets involved with Luis, a young boy, part of a group of impoverished Hispanos squatting at a mining camp that are bootlegging ore. However, typhoid is spreading in the camp, and their leader won't permit Ben or the teacher to get medical help until they can finish their illegal mining, even after Luis comes down with typhoid. Guest starring Susan Howard, 
Mario Alcalde, and Manuel Padilla Jr., best known as Jai, from the 1960s Ron Ely Tarzan series. Sadly, this was one of Alcalde's final roles as he died the following year at age 44, and Padilla died in 2008 at age 52. Things get interesting as we get the first indication of an enhanced healing factor Ben evidently has, not previously mentioned. He's winged at the beginning of the episode when he's shot at, but quickly heals. This will be something we see several times in the series. However, the extremely formulaic story gives us a slide in quality over the prior three, and was an indication of things to come. Episode 5, The Rainbow Butcher Driving through a small town, Richards is stopped by the sheriff on a trumped-up traffic violation, thrown in jail, and sentenced to work on a personal project of the sheriff for 25 days. Things get complicated when he witnesses the sheriff kill one of the prisoners. Guest starring the late Vic Morrow as Sheriff Wheeler, Colin Wilcox Paxton as his kept woman, and young Jimmy Bracken. Now here we are at the fifth episode, both in production number and air date, and we already have an actual recycled script from The Fugitive. A season two episode called Nicest Fella You'd Ever Want to Meet, the first of five Fugitive episodes written by Jack Turley. This was a result of Turley being asked by showrunner Anthony Wilson to refurbish one of his Fugitive scripts for the show. When one of the guys at ABC read my script, he got his shorts in a knot. He called Tony Wilson and told him I had plagiarized my own fugitive script. Tony laughed and told the guy to forget it. All he wanted was a shootable script. The guy who blew the whistle crawled back into his hole, and we shot the thing. Director Nick Webster also had an interesting memory, recalling having reserved parking on the Paramount lot as episode director. It wasn't a very exciting project, but I remember on the Paramount lot, they had parking places for the directors. They were designated by the names of the director's shows. When I directed Mannix, I parked in the space marked Mannix Director. When I directed Immortal, I parked in the space marked Immortal Director. Unfortunately, it won't prove to be true. Nick Webster left us in 2006 at age 94. Episode 6, Man on a Punched Card Maitland calls in a computer research firm subsidiary to run an extensive personality profile on Richards, which is used to track him and even predict his movements with more than a fair degree of accuracy. However, one of the programmers needs Richards for a personal reason, to save her own daughter's life. Guest starring Lee Patterson, Linda Day George, and Barry Cahill. Linda Day was an up-and-coming actress at the time, having appeared on about 30 hours of television by the time of this episode. After working with Christopher George on 1966's The Gentle Rain and again on 1970's Chisholm, the two were married five and a half months before this episode aired. This was one of her very first credits as Linda Day George. The married couple were then in multiple TV movies and TV episodes, as well as some theatrical films together throughout the 1970s. Linda Day George admitted her unfamiliarity with computer lingo. At the time, I was so ignorant of computers. I didn't know the difference between a readout and a printout. 
My best memory was in having an unusually supportive and intelligent producer in Tony Wilson, and a first-rate story editor and friend in Steve Candle. This episode was also, shall we say, an homage to a third-season episode of The Fugitive called The 2130. In that episode, a computer scientist uses a state-of-the-art computer to predict Richard Kimball's movements after a chance encounter with him. Here, writer Shimon Winselberg included different subplots, but the base storyline is unmistakable. This episode, the 10th produced, seems to establish the NRI, or National Research Institute, a Maitland subsidiary. The establishing shot used to depict the exterior of the NRI was used in the five episodes produced after this one, and at least in one of the four already filmed but that had yet to air. The name National Research Institute is lifted directly from James Gunn's The Immortals novel. A real supercomputer was seen in this episode, not just a prop, a complete Working, Sperry Univac 1106 was seen numerous times throughout the episode. Univac stood for Universal Automatic Computer, a trademark of the Unisys Corporation. Introduced in December 1969, the Univac 1100 series were 36-bit computer systems, with the 1106 being a lower-cost version of the 1108 and aimed at general business applications, as opposed to engineering and scientific ones. The 1106 was commonly programmed with the COBOL programming language for business applications. It utilized punch cards and switches for inputting data, punch cards for outputting and storing data, as well as magnetic reel-to-reel half-inch tape drives and magnetic core memory boards for what we would now call RAM, and took up an entire room and required multiple operators. A real snapshot of 1970 technology. Of course, the sounds heard in this episode, ostensibly from the Univac, were from sound effects libraries, also used on Star Trek and Wonder Woman. Episode 7, White Horse, Steel Horse. Working at a potato ranch, Richards inadvertently gets caught up in a pay dispute between two workers and the ranch owner when he unfairly not only docks their pay, but pulls a gun on them. In the resulting scuffle, the sheriff is shot, and the workers flee, but the rancher also accuses Richards of being in on it. This results in a chase in the hills, with Fletcher not far behind. Guest starring John Daner, Warner Anderson, Steve Oliver, and Roby Porter. Daner started as an animator for Walt Disney, on films Fantasia and Bambi, before branching out into one of the more prolific acting careers seen in Hollywood over his 76 years of life. Written by Star Trek's Gene L. Kuhn and Stephen Candle, this episode is somewhat frightening, as it indicates very little has changed in over 50 years. The rancher takes a dismal, even hateful view of anyone not matching his narrow, conservative, establishment opinion of how to live. John Daner's rancher character lumps all people not meeting his standards together, whether they be motorcyclists, hippies, or just anyone with a longer haircut than he has, as rotten, long-haired scum. He takes this to an extreme by even intending to commit executions of already captured men, not even yet charged with a crime.
much less put on trial. Daner even delivers lines that sound like they could have been delivered by any recent talk show demagogue. But as Ben Richards rightly points out, people have the right to be different and not get killed for it. Episode 8, The Queen's Gambit Richards helps a woman named Sigrid, having car trouble. She gives him a ride to her place and even helps him get a job. However, she is a highly intelligent agent, part of an elaborate operation to stage his death and abscond with Richards to deliver him to a billionaire, supposedly in another country, with grand ideas of changing the world with what humankind could learn from Richards' blood. Guest starring the outstanding Lee Merriweather, Nico Minardos, Carl Swinson, and a man named Joe Thomas had a walk-on role. Thomas was not an actor. He was a 34-year-old Detroit auto worker brought on to the immortal as part of a studio stunt I'll cover in the next segment. The episode title refers to one of the oldest known opening moves in chess. This title was also used for a popular Netflix series in 2020. The quarters Richards is given to live in was none other than the Queen Anne Cottage and Coach Barn, most famously known for being seen in every episode of Fantasy Island. This pair of buildings is located at the Los Angeles County Arboretum and Botanic Garden on Baldwin Lake and was also seen on Man from Atlantis, Roots, Wonder Woman, and Murder, She Wrote. Baldwin Lake, a four-acre body of water, was also seen in this episode, and it has been used as a filming location to represent swamps, lakes, rivers, and lagoons since the 1930s in films like Tarzan Escapes, Safari, and Road to Singapore. On TV, Baldwin Lake was seen in 1952's Raymar of the Jungle and Sea Hunt, as well as a variety of programs throughout the 1970s. Following this episode, ABC announced the cancellation of the series, with the news hitting the papers November 14th. Production was completed on a 15th episode, and to their credit, ABC aired all remaining episodes in the regular time slot. Episode 9, By Gift of Chance When he is shot in a back alley in Mexico, Richards finds himself taken across the border, along with migrant workers, to work at a tomato farm. The owner is a halfway decent woman, but the foreman is a sadistic sexual predator that has it out for Richards and his new friend. Guest starring Jacqueline Scott, Michael Conrad, and Herb Jefferson Jr., who would later be known for his Battlestar Galactica role of Lieutenant Boomer. Michael Conrad would later open each episode of NBC's Hill Street Blues with Sergeant Esterhouse telling his squadron, Hey, let's be careful out there, which would become the show's signature slogan. The Emmy Award-winning actor died during the show's fourth season, a victim of cancer at age 58. Although Conrad added weight to the episode as the heavy, this was a run-of-the-mill episode with Richards forced to work as a tomato picker alongside immigrants, a situation Richard Kimball found himself in more than a few times on The Fugitive. Episode 10, Dead Man, Dead Man. The car Richards is riding in crashes, and he is mistaken for the driver, who perishes in a fast river. Assuming the man's identity as a police detective, he is confronted with a hostile town when he finds he's there to arrest the local doctor who's been practicing medicine without a license. 
guest starring Joan Hotchkiss, Henry Beckman, and Byron Keith. This episode seems to have been shot in the vicinity of Azusa, California, about 20 miles west of L.A. proper. Fletcher was seen in the street outside a Trader Joe's with their old exchange phone number displayed on the building. Looking up the old telephone exchange revealed the general location. The first Trader Joe's opened in Pasadena in 1967, and they had expanded to multiple locations in the L.A. area by 1970. The car crash shown at the beginning was not stock footage, but filmed for this episode, which director Alan Barron recalls didn't go smoothly the first time. We sent a car down a steep cliff, and it didn't turn over. So we had to haul it back up and do it again. Episode 11, Paradise Bay Traveling by car following a lead on his brother, Richards encounters a seaside town with a keep-out sign and is told the entire town was sold to a chemical company. He is told by more than one person that the man who could have been his brother died in a scuba diving accident. But when he does some digging, there is much more to the story. Guest starring Tisha Sterling in an unusual double role as twin sisters. Also Howard Duff and Scott Brady. We get a break from the Fletcher pursuit in this one, but we got a run-of-the-mill episode that really added nothing to the immortal story and could have been an episode of any similar show, or even something like The Rockford Files for that matter. While writer Benjamin Masalink's original story outline was conceived as a cautionary tale against the dangers of industrial pollution, this plotline was watered down by Stephen Candle and Dan Ullman with a murder story element. They did select a great filming location, a run-down, boarded-up town by the ocean with coastal winds and the squawking of seagulls. Episode 12, The Return Fletcher briefs a team of 11 bounty hunters assigned to find Ben Richards, focusing on southern Ohio. Richards returns to visit Joe Carver, a black man who raised him and his brother, but finds him falsely accused of the battery of his daughter's white fiancé. Instead of running, Richards stays to help his friend as well as the injured young man, putting him right in the sights of Fletcher and his men. Guest starring Harry Towns, Richard Ward, Martine Bartlett, and Ted Knight. The two-and-a-half-minute opening of this episode with Fletcher assigning an entire team to track Richards down, as well as some later dialogue between them, plays like this was far earlier in the series. That's because this was actually the second episode produced, but was kicked down the schedule in favor of what the network felt were stronger episodes to start off the series. This episode was a very interesting presentation of interracial dynamics in 1970 America. First, it's revealed that Ben Richards and his brother were raised by a black man and integrated into his family, a daring choice for 1970 television. Then it was revealed that Joe's daughter had a white lover, with this being presented as a likely motive for Joe's accused battery once he found out. But it turned out, even though Joe was uncomfortable with the prospect of his daughter having a white boyfriend, he brushed it off by the conclusion, saying, You just can't keep up with these kids today. A filming location note, the main chase scene was filmed at the Heritage Trail to the Oak of the Golden Dream, west of Santa Clarita, California. 
The tunnel that takes walkers under Placerita Canyon Road was used by Richards to escape Fletcher and his men. The Oak of the Golden Dream is a monument to the first recorded discovery of gold in California in 1842. Episode 13, To the Gods Alone Trapped by a snowstorm in a mountain cabin, Fletcher and an apprehended Richards prepare to hunker down for the duration. Over dinner, they recall an earlier time when Richards was captured by Jordan Braddock, until Richards got the upper hand and he and Braddock ended up together in one situation after another in remote Florida. Barry Sullivan returns as Jordan Braddock, Lynn Loring, Bruce Dern, and the late Peggy Ray, known for her roles on The Waltons, The Dukes of Hazard, and Grace Under Fire, also appear. Bruce Dern is also pretty funny as a rural hick amazed by electric car windows. Yes, it's another return to earlier times in this first regular series episode produced. Watching this after the other episodes, it's clear that they filmed new bookend scenes to frame the bulk of this earlier episode that was originally intended to end Jordan Braddock's story and turn Richard's pursuit over to Maitland. More on this later. The flashback story begins and ends abruptly, as do the wraparound scenes, especially the conclusion. However, Richard spends an extended amount of time face-to-face with both Braddock and Fletcher and gets to know more about the motivations of each man. This aired on New Year's Eve about six weeks after the show had already been canceled. It seems all three networks aired regular programming that night before Guy Lombardo brought in the new year after the local news. Episode 14, Sanctuary Running from Fletcher on a dune buggy in the southwest, Richards breaks down in Native American tribal land, falls down a hill, and is seriously injured. Taken to a settlement by a Navajo group, he eventually befriends Senegini, a young man who tries to nickel and dime Richards for his continual assistance with repairs to his dune buggy, while Fletcher closes in. Guest starring Sal Mineo, Paul Picerni, Don Redberry, Iron Eyes Cody, and Fred Lerner. Saul Mineo was the hip-speaking Cinegini, whose slang was about a decade out of date. As was practiced at the time, none of the actors were of Native American descent, not even Iron Eyes Cody. Born Espara de Corti, the son of Italian immigrants, in 1924 he moved to California and started working as an actor, changing his name first to Corti, then to Cody, presenting himself as a Native American and working for decades in the motion picture industry. But he may be best remembered for a TV commercial as the Native American that shed a single tear for the Keep America Beautiful anti-littering campaign ads that ran throughout the 1970s. The episode itself was a very dated and cliched portrayal of relations between the white man and the American Indian, as they were often called at the time. Episode 15, Brother's Keeper. Finally getting a location on his brother from the orphanage they both lived at, Richards finally catches up to Jason, the man believed to be his brother. But so does Fletcher who quickly cons Jason and his wife Allison into a deal for a six-month medical study. 
Richards breaks them out of Maitland's NRI building, and the two men are pursued in the woods with Allison held hostage. Guest starring Michael Strong, Marge Doucet, and James Sicking makes a brief appearance. The Univac 1106 makes another appearance, but that was the only highlight I found with this episode, which was full of plot points that just didn't make any sense. The biggest of these is the fact that Ben doesn't recognize Jason, who according to three episodes ago were both raised by Joe Carver up to their mid-teens. It's brought up that Jason had amnesia from an accident, so he doesn't remember Joe or Ben. Fair enough. However, I've recognized people in their 50s who I haven't seen since junior high, and I think Ben would have recognized his own brother. Dialogue also seems to contradict or ignore the earlier episode, The Return. Richards also breaks Jason and Allison out of Maitland's Research Institute under the nose of Fletcher far too easily. And we get no real answers here either. Jason doesn't heal, so it's concluded he doesn't have the immortal blood. But he may or may not be the brother Ben has been seeking. How many Jason Richards were there at that orphanage? And that was a wrap for The Immortal, ending the series on January 14th, 1971. The Immortal, starring Christopher George, will continue following station identification. Dan August, San Luisa Police Department. Reynolds stars as Lieutenant Dan August. What is this, a police situation or a political situation? It's a disaster situation. Intensely professional. I want to find the person that killed him. A matter of pride. Idealistic. Realistic. Committed. Dan August. Behind the Scenes The Immortal ABC Movie of the Week was shot over 20 days for a budget of $500,000. It was actually slated to be ABC's very first Movie of the Week, but ABC switched it at the last minute with Seven in Darkness with Milton Berle. On the news that it was signed to be developed into an ABC TV movie, James Gunn's The Immortals novel went into another printing in 1968. He then reluctantly was persuaded by his publisher Bantam to adapt Robert Speck's TV screenplay into a tie-in novel released in conjunction with the TV series premiere. Of course, this TV version of Gunn's story steered away from science fiction and toward the action genre, with just a touch of science fiction to set up the conceit of the storyline. Lou Morheim was brought on to produce the telefilm, he had been a producer on the first season of The Outer Limits, which included Speck's episode, Fun and Games. Borheim was pleased how the TV movie turned out. All of us put in hours of meticulous work into this film's making. Since the idea was new at the time, nobody suspected it would do so well in the ratings. And I think its success lies in the good character interplay, 
I was glad at the way it turned out. Although everyone seemed to know this was a backdoor pilot for a potential series, Paramount told Specht not to think of it that way. I told them this would make a terrific TV series, and they said, we don't want you to have that in mind when you write the movie. We want a movie without any indication of a series. And I said, okay. They wanted an entertaining movie, and if there was a series, it would take care of itself. The excellent ratings and critical reception of the telefilm did indeed spur ABC to pursue series development for the fall 1970 schedule. In preparation for series production, James Gunn met with Robert Specht to spitball who they could get to write for the series. In March of 1970, I met with Robert Specht. I suggested we recruit science fiction writers such as Ted Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison, and David Gerald. In fact, Gerald had written me a letter asking to write for The Immortal. However, reportedly to reduce expenses, Paramount Executive VP Douglas Kramer did an end run around Specht, Morheim, and Gunn, selecting Anthony Wilson as new producer and Dan Ullman as story editor. Wilson had previously written for Have Gun Will Travel, The Fugitive, and Land of the Giants, and had produced ABC's one-season drama, Follow the Sun. Ullman had penned numerous theatrical westerns and had written for both The Invaders and The Fugitive, very similar material to the series tone they were looking for, as we'll examine. Speck's own agent ironically got a call from Paramount when they were looking for a series story editor. When told his client was the perfect choice since he created the show, Paramount said, We'll get back to you. It turned out they didn't want anyone on the series from the original movie. ABC had directed that The Immortal would not be a science fiction show and would instead be heavier on action-adventure and that the series would have a mandated three car chases per episode. As a courtesy, Specht and Gunn were sent copies of several scripts for the upcoming series, and they were both appalled at the poor quality, with Specht recalling, You can almost predict whether a show is going to be a dog or not. I saw a sampling of the scripts, and it was clear that they were going to turn this immortal into a social worker every week. They also had him running every week. I told Tony Wilson, the pace is too frantic. It will only make people nervous. The stories are all hyped up. People don't want that kind of nervous energy in their living room every week. Wilson's suggestion to bring a touch of sci-fi back to the story was to reveal that orphans Ben and brother Jason were discovered as infants near a UFO sighting, bringing a Superman-type plot element into the show. This fantastical story element was never implemented, nor was the early concept that Richard's pursuer Fletcher be an android, as revealed years later by actor Don Knight. The series was thus grounded in reality, with the immortal blood being the only science fiction story element. But unlike Gunn's novel, it was clear the series would never seriously consider the societal, medical, or political implications of the possibilities of some humans gaining virtual immortality in favor of the weekly chase. James Gunn I watched the series with white knuckles. It went downhill from the pilot film. They were making the episodes much faster and putting less into them in the way of FX. 
I was really hoping they would get into stories where there wasn't a chase and instead deal with the problems of an immortal in a mortal world. One of the reasons for the poor quality of scripts gone and specs previewed was a behind-the-scenes rush to get these scripts written and purchased by the studio in the shadow of a looming threat of a writer's strike. If a strike happened in the middle of the production season, it would bring production to a screeching halt. Thus, 17 scripts were hastily produced by 13 writers on a deadline, which meant more than one recycled story from a very similar prior series, such as Jack Turley's The Rainbow Butcher, as well as Man on a Punched Card, both of which were recycled stories from The Fugitive. This was something not only seen in hindsight, but ABC recognized it as an issue almost immediately when seeing the poor reviews given to the first two completed episodes screened for test audiences two months prior to the fall premiere, which is likely why those two early episodes were pushed so far down the schedule airing weeks after the series cancellation had already been announced. Ken Trevi, writer of To the Gods Alone, the first episode produced, recalled, The production of Gods was so bad that they showed it on New Year's Eve when virtually nobody was watching. They, whoever was making the decisions, filmed a couple of bookend scenes to make the story play as a flashback. Don't ask me why. They also didn't budget enough money or time for the makeup to convincingly age Barry Sullivan. The result was an embarrassment that they hid as best they could. In fact, ABC was so disappointed by these first two episodes that producer Richard Caffey, associate producer William Hull Jr., and story editor Dan Ullman were all let go, and Howie Horwitz, Greg Peters and Stephen Candle were brought in, respectively, for the remaining 13 episodes to replace them. And according to Stephen Candle, at some point even Anthony Wilson was relieved of showrunning duties, with this turned over to Howie Horwitz, although for some reason his executive producer credit was seen in remaining episodes. Candle later recalled this production shakeup. We had been brought in at the last minute for major emergency surgery. We saw the immortal as another victim of an accident. There wasn't much time for tender-loving care. For some episodes airing later, network research was used to influence the script writing, as related by Robert Duncan, writer of The Legacy and Brothers Keeper, along with his wife Wanda. The network was always looking for something to reassure themselves. They pre-tested ideas by taking people off the street and asking them what they wanted to see. These tests were regarded as silly in the story conferences. We were given a list which contained ten story elements, and as long as we used four of them, it was okay. Test audiences preferred Indians to Mexicans, the American Southwest to Appalachia, so we followed these rules while writing The Legacy. Director Robert Douglas had high hopes for the series. He directed The Legacy and Queen's Gambit. I thought The Immortal had a considerable future. I don't believe the producers could see the way to go with the series, and consequently the scripts became confused and without conviction. I found it frustrating. Yes, most of the show's difficulties seemed to revolve around those hurriedly written scripts the show was stuck with 
after they were purchased by Anthony Wilson in anticipation of an imminent writer's strike, which never materialized, as explained by Stephen Candle. The series' pre-production period coincided with the writer's strike, and the then-producer Wilson made a value judgment based on the assumption that the strike would be protracted. He ordered 17 scripts almost at once, knowing they would be scratched out by harried writers trying to lay in a few warm shekels before a long, cold strike. To his dismay, the strike was settled, and he and the studio were left with 17 scripts of dubious perfection. Wilson was let go, and Howie Horwitz was brought in on a rush basis to ram it through. Christopher George himself noted the uneven quality and characterizations of the scripts obtained for the series. Some of the scripts are rotten. In one show, they've got me playing an introspective character who practically sucks his thumb. In the next show, I'm a finger-snapping, gum-chewing wise guy. Yes, the success of the series depended largely on the appeal and abilities of its lead actor to carry the show. Christopher George was of Greek descent and grew up in Miami driving trucks for his father before quitting high school and lying about his age to join the Marines at 17. During the Korean War, he skippered a crash boat and served as a gunner on rescue aircraft. Following his stint in the military, he got his GED and attended the University of Miami, earning a bachelor's degree in finance. Following his schooling, he held all manner of jobs. He was a merchant sailor, second mate on a Caribbean cargo ship, a bouncer, a bartender, as well as briefly trying his hand at being a private eye. But when an aptitude test revealed he would excel in the performing arts, he made his way to New York City to study drama and made his debut on Hugh O'Brien's stage production of Mr. Roberts. Once he appeared in a 1962 shaving cream commercial for which he won an award, this opened the door to TV and film roles. He had been spotted by Paramount casting lead Mildred Gussie, who got him placed in several auditions. Gussie recalled his first. He was nervous and frightened. If Chris hadn't been scared, I wouldn't have bothered. It showed he had intelligence and sensitivity. He was soon testing for a role on a pilot for CBS called Merrick and reading for its director, John Cassavetes. Improvising a Bogart persona on the second audition, George got the part, but a shakeup of executives at CBS involving the firing of network president James Aubrey ended up nixing the proposed series. His TV debut ended up being George the Warlock on a 1965 episode of Bewitched. George, well, I should have known. Hi there, Cinderella. Your old Prince Charming has come to take you to the ball we used to have. Also that year, he shot the film The Gentle Rain with actress Linda Day, whom he had previously met on a photo shoot, as both were models with the same agency. Then the role of Nels McLeod in the film El Dorado came along where he worked alongside John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. Right after El Dorado filming, he was cast as the lead on ABC's 1966 series, The Rat Patrol. 
The instantly successful series lasted two seasons and followed four Allied soldiers during a long desert patrol in the North African campaign during World War II. On January 4, 1967, while filming episode 26 of the first season, George and co-stars Gabby Raymond and Justin Tarr were involved in a Jeep rollover, filming a stunt sequence on the dry surface of Rosamond Lake in the Mojave Desert. Raymond, jumping clear, suffered a broken ankle, while George and Tarr were pinned under the Jeep. Fortunately, the 50 caliber gun mounted on the vehicle served to prevent it from crushing the actors. Tar had only an injured arm, but George's injuries were more serious, having a concussion, a torn neck muscle, and other injuries. The future of the series depended on his recovery. This was hardly the first injury for the actor. Prior to the Jeep rollover, he had already dislocated both shoulders, sprained both ankles, and injured his right foot. On January 23rd, with his injuries seemingly healed enough, filming resumed. George was required to take it easier going forward, doing far less stunt work, babying his back injury and cutting back on his diet due to being less active. The Rat Patrol was the first TV series to dramatize World War II in color and did so in early prime time at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain. Estimates of how many of Rommel's Africa Corps were killed by George's Sergeant Sam Troy and crew ranged from 600 on the low end to a whopping 2,400 over the course of 58 episodes. As he told a reporter in a period news article, We really shot up the landscape, didn't we? However, this was during a time when serious concerns were being raised over TV violence and its effect on children. Both Saturday morning cartoons, as well as primetime programs, came under a microscope by critics for their violent content. And the Rat Patrol was no exception, being included by at least one group among the top ten violent shows on TV in the summer of 1968. This campaign against violent content on television began to organize against the sponsors of shows, and were successful in getting some companies such as Levi Strauss, to stop advertising on TV shows deemed violent. When asked if he had a different opinion than vocal TV violence critic Senator John Pastor, who had instigated a Surgeon General's committee to investigate TV violence and its effect on children, George answered, You're f***ing right. I've never heard so much in my life. That whole business made me sick. You take Rat Patrol. We were nothing but a bunch of actors playing games. Overgrown kids, that's what we were. And every 12-year-old kid knew the difference. Following that series two seasons, he was in a half-dozen films, as well as one ABC TV movie of the week, House on Green Apple Road, which has its own little story. In that Quinn Martin production, George played Lieutenant Dan August, police detective, investigating the disappearance of the promiscuous wife of a timid salesman believed to have murdered her. The clever story was told in a series of flashbacks as each suspect entered the plot. Tim O'Connor, Janet Lee, Keenan Wynn, Ed Asner, and even a young pre-Brady Bunch Eve Plum also star. The telefilm was based on a novel by Harold Daniels. 
ABC's Sunday Night Movie. Mommy? House on Green Apple Road, starring Janet Lee, Julie Harris, Tim O'Connor, Walter Pigeon, Barry Sullivan, Keenan Wynn, and Christopher George. Green Apple Road was filmed in the summer of 1968 and had a longer runtime than usual for a TV movie, coming in at 1 hour 53 minutes. Quinn Martin Productions, beginning to have a strained relationship with ABC by this point, refused to edit down the telefilm to fit in a standard two-hour time slot with commercials. Director Robert Day recalled the disagreement with ABC. That didn't go over too well with the network. They wanted to cut the movie. Quinn told me he wasn't going to do that. He was so insistent on that running time. The story warranted that running time, he said. He just didn't want to forfeit it. The telefilm then sat on the shelf for a year and a half. Following the filming of Green Apple Road, Paramount was casting for an upcoming ABC movie of the week they had just bought the rights to, being cast by none other than George's friend, Mildred Gussie. Chris George was signed to do The Immortal Telefilm in May of 1969, and it aired in September to great success, as we've seen. Following the immortal telefilm, George asked to be released from the Dan August series option, should ABC choose to pick up a series based on the Green Apple Road character, effectively placing his bets on the immortal selling as a series, much to the objection of Quinn Martin, who tried to get the actor to change his mind. ABC finally aired Green Apple Road on a random Sunday night in January, simply letting it run long and causing all affiliates to be 15 minutes late the rest of the night. Yes, Quinn Martin won that little squabble. ABC indeed picked up Dan August as a series, and Quinn Martin again pursued George for the role, but George instead suggested friend Burt Reynolds, going so far as to deliver tapes of episodes of Reynolds' prior series, Hawk, to the producer. George finally learned The Immortal was picked up for series on February 25, 1970, when the actor turned 39, which he related in a period news article. There I was in New York. It was my birthday, and we went to 21 to celebrate. That's when I got the news The Immortal had sold for a series. I tell you, I stayed loaded for a week. After being cast as The Immortal... George lost 21 pounds during the hectic weekly production schedule. In late August, he happened to run into Fugitive star David Jansen, who knew what George was in for as the lead on a one-hour action-adventure series. I saw Jansen the other day. He just said, <laughs> Regarding the differences between his immortal role and that of his earlier role on The Rap Patrol, George commented, for once, I don't have a machine gun in my hand. The problems we really face in The Immortal are of character. How does a man like Richards feel? How does he remain honest? Where does he go when he's pursued? And a lot of other unanswered questions. I interpret Richards as a man who feels caged, gemmed in by his own uniqueness. He's got to search for freedom, escaping those sons of who would use him for their own ends. 
Even with immortality, a man could still desire freedom. Otherwise, he'd be no better off than a caged animal. The man who would cage him was Fletcher, as played by English actor Don Knight. Whether he was working for Jordan Braddock or Arthur Maitland, Fletcher was seen in 12 of the 15 series episodes. A veteran of the British Army, he left England for Canada and studied at Sir George Williams University in Montreal and later at the Wesley Seminary in Washington, D.C. He obtained degrees in English, philosophy, drama, and theology. That's right, Knight was an ordained minister in addition to being an actor. Knight served as a pastor at numerous churches over the years. At the time of the immortal, he was associate pastor of the North Hollywood Congregationalist Church. He had moved to Southern California to pursue acting in 1965, initially striking out and pumping gas and preaching in the Watts District of L.A. One day, an exhausted Knight was urged by his wife to quit his gas station job, and he did. He revealed what happened next in a period news article. I took her advice, and it turned out to have prophetic implications. The following day, the guy who took my place had his head blown off by an armed robber. The fortunate Knight soon obtained roles on Irwin Allen's series, The Time Tunnel, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He appeared on stage with Charlton Heston in A Man for All Seasons, and in 1967 on Christopher George's series, The Rat Patrol. Knight was philosophical about his immortal role. There is a valid promise in the immortal, in that there is a dream in every man that everyone really does live forever. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian or Buddhist or what. There is a tremendous drive in the soul of man for immortality. What Fletcher represents in the show is the subconscious feeling of people that they will be punished for feeling joy. Within the Protestant ethic is that deep-down feeling that if things are going well, you will be called to account. That's what Fletcher is. In reality, he is the alter ego of Ben Richards. Although mentioned in nearly every series episode, the character of Arthur Maitland, as played by actor David Bryan, was only seen twice. In the first episode, Sylvia, and in episode three, Reflections on a Lost Tomorrow. Bryan was an established actor with a 20-year career, appearing first in theatrical films, then he was cast as Mr. District Attorney in 1954. Following that series, the actor was in numerous TV westerns and appeared as historian John Gill on Patterns of Force, a 1968 Star Trek episode, who altered the development of the planet Ecos to model that of Nazi Germany. Brian made a few more guest appearances on TV, but did very little after 1973. He died in 1993 at age 78. Episodes of The Immortal were shot almost exclusively on location over the course of five to seven days for a budget of $190,000. Aside from the production problems already covered, the series was well-directed and shot efficiently and to a high degree of quality. Director of photography Al Francis, who had worked on season three of Star Trek, commented years later on his time working on The Immortal. 
I didn't know about any of those production problems. For me, the series was a wonderful working experience. It was a tough show to do because we moved from location to location. Very little of the series was filmed on a soundstage. From the producer to the craft service man, everyone was cooperative. We had one of the most effective crews in television and always brought the show under budget. Sam Strangis, head of the production department, couldn't get over the amount of work we'd get done in a day. The extensive location filming occasionally had its pitfalls, as related by associate producer Greg Peters. We filmed several episodes up at Lake Peru, California. It was a quaint, old-fashioned little town. One day I got a call from the production people. Greg, you'd better come down here. We can't shoot the episode. The townspeople had gotten fed up with having a camera crew in their midst. They protested by yelling and turning up their music full blast. This totally disrupted filming. I went up there and gave the townspeople some money and beer. They quieted down. Actually, it was kind of funny. I think they held up every production company from then on. Those responsible for directing The Immortal included Michael Caffey with three episodes. Caffey had worked on Combat, Garrison's Gorillas, and It Takes a Thief in the 1960s. Leslie H. Martinson, also with three episodes. The veteran director helmed numerous series such as Maverick, 77 Sunset Strip, the similar Run for Your Life, and 1966's Batman. Robert Douglas with two episodes. Douglas had been an actor before transitioning to behind the camera on Maverick, Surfside 6, and 12 O'Clock High. The prolific Don Weiss helmed two episodes, a veteran of a number of the Playhouse-style anthologies of the 1950s, as well as The Andy Griffith Show, Burke's Law, The Patty Duke Show, and Batman up to this time. Additional episodes were directed by Joseph Sargent, Alan Barron, Don McDougall, Irving J. Moore, Nicholas Webster, and Charles R. Rondeau. Writers not previously mentioned included Robert Hamner, known at the time for Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Run for Your Life. William Wood, who had written episodes of The Fugitive and Run for Your Life. And William Eastlake, known more for his novels such as Castle Keep and The Bamboo Bed that came out of his experiences serving in the U.S. Army and as a reporter during the Vietnam War. The music score for the original telefilm reused for the series opening was composed by Dominic Frontier. Frontier had provided music for the similarly themed series Branded, The Invaders, and The Rap Patrol. He was a frequent collaborator with writer-producer Leslie Stevens, working on Stevens' projects such as Stony Burke, The Outer Limits, and Search. Stuntman Hal Needham, veteran of countless TV and film productions, was Christopher George's stunt double. DOP Al Francis commented on both Needham and George's contributions to the series' extensive stunt sequences. From 20 feet away, Hal and Chris looked identical. That's why Hal got the job. Chris George also did a lot of the action stuff that he didn't have to do. He was a hard-working guy. We never had to wait for Chris, and he was never temperamental. He was a regular guy. He was very generous and thoughtful. He was the kind of guy who would give you the shirt off his back. 
I admired him tremendously. Hal Needham was also a director, helming vehicle stunt-heavy films such as Smokey and the Bandit and its sequel, Hooper, the Cannonball Run films, and Megaforce. I mentioned a man named Joe Thomas appearing on Episode 8, The Queen's Gambit. Thomas was not an actor. He was a 34-year-old Detroit auto worker the studio had come across in a newspaper article due to the rare properties of his blood. Thomas's blood was in demand after it was discovered to have the highest known concentration of the rare blood antibody called anti-Lewis B used in genetics research. In a striking similarity to the Immortals fictional story, Thomas had made a blood donation in 1963, and the rare properties were discovered by a doctor analyzing blood samples. Thomas then made additional donations at the prompting of researchers, but stopped going due to the discomfort of the procedure and the distance of the county hospital where this was done. After two years, the national supply of the rare antibody was depleted, and researchers were unable to contact Thomas or find him due to his common name. This prompted a five-year search for him, involving private detectives and medical research firms. Finally, a newspaper reporter located him through a social security number match at the Chrysler plant that employed him. Thomas then made a deal for a reported $12,000 a year, the equivalent of $85,500 today, selling his blood to the American Hospital Supply Company, double what his yearly salary was at the auto plant. The news story hit the national press on August 2, 1970, and was spotted by the studio, who couldn't pass up the promotional opportunity and brought him out the first week of October for a press conference, promotional photo ops with star Chris George, and to appear in an episode on a walk-on role. The entire account was written up for an article in the May 1971 issue of Ebony Magazine. The influence of ABC's prior series, The Fugitive, has been mentioned several times in reference to The Immortal, but the concept of walking the earth is older than either series. Walking the earth is a story trope where a traveling lead character, always a man, travels from place to place, becoming inserted into the personal situations of people along the way. On rare occasions, the story might feature a pair or even a trio of characters traveling together. This genre of story is typically associated with North America, but other cultures and countries have their own walking-the-earth stories, such as tales of the Australian Aboriginal walkabout, the Japanese ronin, and chivalric knights-errant of Middle Ages folklore. On U.S. television, this story premise was often enhanced by the wanderer being on the run from some type of authority figure. This storytelling genre was highlighted by the character Jules in Quentin Tarantino's 1994 film, Pulp Fiction. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then... Basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. 
so you decided to be a bum. The advantage of a TV series with this format is clear. Episodes are largely formulaic, and unless landmark events in the storyline take place, could be broadcast in any order in reruns, with viewers only needing to know a very superficial backstory to be up to speed for the current episode. Even though there were a number of later imitators of The Fugitive, The Immortal seemed very much like ABC wanting a carbon copy of that highly successful series that had ended only three years earlier on the same network. The protagonist was unjustly on the run, traveling to a new place each week in search of his brother who could possess the same blood properties and thus also be in danger from those who would want what it would give them. Much like Richard Kimball's run on that prior series. The Fugitive was created by Roy Huggins, one of the most accomplished producers and show creators in television's first 50 years. Huggins was a novelist who became a staff writer at Columbia Pictures in 1948 when they picked up the film rights to his novel The Double Take, which was adapted into the 1948 film I Love Trouble. Huggins moved to television in 1954, after previously considering the technology science fiction only two years before buying a TV set himself. After pinning several episode screenplays, he became a writer on ABC's Western series Cheyenne and was asked to take over showrunning duties. Following his stint at Warner Television on Cheyenne, ABC was interested in having him create another Western series. Huggins had just the series concept for them, something he came up with while working on Cheyenne. In 1957, his new show, again produced by Warner Television, aired on ABC, a show that you may have heard of. Maverick. Starring James Garner and Jack Kelly. Produced by Warner Brothers. The half-hour light-hearted western depicted James Garner as gambler Brett Maverick. Or alternately, Brother Bart, Brother Brent, or Cousin Bo might appear, traveling from one poker game to the next across post-Civil War America, delighting viewers for five seasons, decades of worldwide reruns, a 1981 series, a 1991 TV movie, and a 1994 spin-off film. However, you'll note Huggins was not created as show creator for Maverick. That's because instead of the episode he wrote to be the series pilot airing first, Warner substituted another episode written by James O'Hanlon based on a 1935 book they owned the rights to, while using the main character from the 1948 Warner film Silver River, originally played by Errol Flynn. As related by Huggins in a 1998 interview for the Television Academy Foundation, he states this was intentionally done to deny him future royalties as series creator, as was their practice at the time. Huggins was not credited on screen as the creator of the Maverick franchise until the 1994 film. The year after Maverick debuted, Huggins found himself in the same situation creating his next series, again for Warner Television and ABC. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 
Sunset Strip. Starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. 77 Sunset Strip. Roger Smith. 77 Sunset Strip. And Edward Byrne. Brothers. 77 Sunset Strip featured Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Roger Smith, and Ed Burns as the most hip, swinging, and ginchiest detectives you ever saw. Operating out of offices located on the fictional street in the title, a stand-in for Los Angeles's Sunset Boulevard. The quite successful series ran for six seasons and spawned three spin-offs, a breakout character with a hit single, comic books from Gold Key, and was one of the first shared universe TV franchises where characters would cross over from one show to another. The character of Stuart Bailey, played in the series by Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., had first appeared in Huggins' 1946 novel and in his film I Love Trouble. When the 90-minute pilot, which had been written by a staff writer, performed very well with test audiences, Warner briefly released it theatrically in Puerto Rico as Girl on the Run, the title of the episode. Huggins was then denied creator credit and royalties for the series, giving him only story by and producer credits on the pilot, on the basis that the series was derived from a theatrical film they owned the rights to. Huggins had had enough with Warner Brothers and not only struck out to work elsewhere, but going forward demanded increasing rights and ownership of television concepts he authored. I was getting paid my royalty and my fee whether I did the show or not. If I conceived the show and it got on the air, anyone could produce it and I would still get paid just as if I was doing it. That became known as the Huggins Contract. Every producer in television would say, I want the Huggins contract, and some of them got it. The Huggins contract was used in the creation of his next hit series, The Fugitive. Huggins initially received pushback from industry friends regarding the Fugitive series concept, based on the thought that it was distasteful to have a series protagonist being a convicted wife killer. However, when he pitched the concept to a room of ABC executives, then-President Leonard Goldenson remarked that it was probably the best idea for a television series he'd ever heard, while executive Julius Barnathan's reaction to the show was equally unambiguous, saying, Well, I don't like it. I think it's un-American. It's a slap in the face every week to American justice. Barnathan's objections were obviously overruled, and production went forward, with a relatively new production company headed by Quinn Martin, who had previously produced The Untouchables for Desilu and ABC. The Fugitive starred David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball, a physician wrongfully convicted of his wife's murder and sentenced to death. A freak train crash enables his escape and begins his fugitive status, crossing the country in search of the real killer of his wife, a one-armed man while being pursued by Barry Morse's Lieutenant Gerard. The series lasted four seasons and 120 episodes were produced. The Fugitive was a prestige production from Quinn Martin and something of a national phenomenon, rocketing to the number five show on TV in its second season, with some 14.7 million viewers, 
and its 1967 final episode held the record for the most-watched regular TV series episode in history until it was displaced in 1980 by the Who Shot J.R. reveal on Dallas. After four years of production and a relentless production schedule of 30-episode seasons, Jansen was exhausted and expressed the desire to end the series. ABC initially simply wanted The Fugitive to end with no resolution, similar to the strategy they employed on The Time Tunnel, also ending in 1967. The thinking was, a resolution to the storyline would hurt the series in rerun syndication. However, ABC Vice President of Programming Leonard Goldberg had second thoughts when random people would ask him how the series would end. In 2017, Goldberg revealed to Vanity Fair magazine, I realized we were going to leave viewers empty-handed, and that was wrong. I went to the higher-ups at the network and said, we have to give people a conclusion. Produced following the original intended final episode in April, that conclusion wouldn't air until August against summer reruns on the other two networks. Quinn Martin demanded two episodes to do a worthy conclusion to the show, and ABC agreed, with their sales team rapidly selling out ad buys for the two hours at the network's higher fall rates. The two-part finale, especially the second half, was a national event with an incredible 72 share of the audience, some 78 million viewers, seeing Kimball finally catch up to the one-armed man and being exonerated. Series narrator William Conrad concluded the episode with the voiceover. Tuesday, August 29th, the day the running stopped. An alternate date was given in the voiceover when broadcast in Canada on September 5th. Interestingly, the series was already in daytime reruns, and housewives could catch The Fugitive after lunch, then watch the final episodes with the family at 10, 9 Central and Mountain. The reveal of the finale was reportedly announced to the 20,000 in attendance at the Mets Cardinals baseball game in St. Louis. The final episode of The Fugitive was also highly in demand at the Paley Center years later. People out of the country at the time of the original broadcast, such as soldiers returning from Vietnam, would visit what was then called the Museum of Broadcasting in Manhattan to view the episode following its opening in 1976. And of course, The Fugitive was resurrected in 1993 as a hit movie with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, taking advantage of adult audiences that grew up watching the original on television. The Wandering Stranger story theme, with or without the fugitive element of the lead character being pursued unjustly, was imitated numerous times on American television throughout the 70s and 80s TV era. Within two years of The Fugitive's debut, Huggins was encouraged to replicate his fugitive success with the seed of a concept presented to him by MCA TV executive Jennings Lang. In 1965, Run for Your Life aired on NBC, in which a successful lawyer, played by Ben Gazzara, is given less than two years to live and chooses to fearlessly walk the earth. Unlike The Fugitive, which was turned over to Quinn Martin to run, Huggins stayed on at Run For Your Life, running the show as executive producer 
and the show even managed to outlive the prognosis of Gazzara's character for three seasons and 86 episodes. The Immortal was thus one of many shows that would follow the walking the earth template of TV storytelling, with or without the fugitive element of being pursued where the wandering stranger, pair, or sometimes three traveling characters would enter people's lives for an episode and typically help their current circumstances. Kane in Kung Fu. Billy and Mentor in Shazam. Galen, Alan, and Peter in Planet of the Apes. The Karras family in Three for the Road. David Banner in The Incredible Hulk. Logan, Jessica, and Rim in Logan's Run. Lucan. Benu in The Phoenix. Jonathan and Mark in Highway to Heaven. Paul and Scott in Starman. Dr. Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap. Even more examples can be found continuing into the 90s and beyond. The later series, The Incredible Hulk in particular, call to mind how all episodes of The Immortal ended. Ben Richards walking away on a road or perhaps riding away in a bus to Dominic Frontier's theme played with a slow tempo as Richards himself or other characters narrate, commenting on the circumstances of the episode and Richards' impact on their lives as the camera lifts into the sky, emphasizing his lonely run to the next destination. Likewise, the Incredible Hulk episodes would end with David Banner also walking down a road, typically trying to hitch a ride to his next destination, as the Lonely Man theme played out the remaining moments of the episode. However, Ben Richards' run did come to an end in January of 1971, which was noted by Laugh-In's Judy Carn. You know that ABC is crazy. They gave us a show called The Immortal. Thirteen weeks later, it died. The show was admittedly in a tough time slot and faced stiff competition with the CBS Thursday night movies and especially the Dean Martin show on NBC. ABC kept the show on Thursday nights at 10, 9 Central and Mountain throughout its run. For eight weeks, cast and crew waited with bated breath to find out if ABC would pick up the show for a full season. Following episode 8, ABC announced the show cancellation. But what at first seems like a clear-cut case of a show canceled due to low ratings turns out to be a lot more complicated. First, The Immortal performed better than prior shows in the same time slot, as explained by Chris George in late October 1970. ABC has never had more than a 10 or 11% share of the audience at 10 p.m. opposite Dean Martin and Blockbuster Movies. We're getting 22%. That doesn't guarantee renewal, but it's the best ABC has done in that slot. George himself was quite popular in the new TVQ ratings, which also listed The Immortal as the third most popular of the new fall 1970 shows as did a newspaper poll run in the Scranton, Pennsylvania market, right after Dan August and Matt Lincoln. Also, seeing the difficulties against the competition, ABC started testing the series in a far earlier time slot in three broadcast markets, beginning with Episode 5 on October 22nd, South Bend Elkhart, Indiana, 
Peoria, Illinois, and Rochester, New York, saw Ben Richards on their TV screens at 7.30 Eastern, 6.30 Central, for a period of five weeks. The network ran newspaper ads in these markets, promoting the time change where the show ran against Family Affair and The Flip Wilson Show. Results were positive, with the show performing better than in the later time slot. There was thus a hope that a simple rescheduling could resolve the ratings issues. Word actually came down to the cast and crew that the show would be picked up for a full season, with Paramount executive Douglas Kramer throwing a party, as related by actor Don Knight. We were told we were going to be picked up for the remainder of the season. Kramer gave us a big party. The cast and crew were there. It must have been 300 people. Then I looked around, and I said to Chris George, That's odd. None of the producers have shown up. Suddenly, we were both handed a telegram. It said, Sorry, you've been canceled. Best regards, Doug. We were fit to be tied. So, what happened? It had to do with an FCC ruling that changed the face of primetime TV called the Primetime Access Rule. You might note I mentioned that ABC tested the Immortal in three broadcast markets at the early hour of 7.30, 6.30 p.m. Central and Mountain. In this era, the TV networks started the primetime network feed at this time, which would immediately follow the local news on virtually every network affiliate station providing three and a half hours of network content on weeknights. On May 7, 1970, the FCC, which regulates TV and radio broadcasts in the United States, announced what would become known as the Prime Time Access Rule, or PTAR. To fully explain this would likely take a half-hour podcast, but I'll briefly cover the intent, implementation, and effect the PTAR had. Instated over the concern that the three TV networks monopolized television programming on the public airwaves during prime time, the FCC's intent was to release an additional half hour of prime time back to local stations, Monday through Saturday, in addition to an hour on Sunday. Ostensibly, their thinking was this would stimulate the production of locally produced programming tailored to the needs of each market, such as documentaries educational shows, or addressing public affairs. The loss of four hours of broadcast time per week for each network had the result of a higher-than-normal number of show cancellations at the conclusion of the 1970-71 TV season. One side effect of the PTAR's implementation became known as the Rural Purge. In an acceleration of their strategic move to program for the market demographic known as baby boomers, CBS canceled a disproportionate number of still-popular series that appealed to rural and older audiences. These included The Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, Hee Haw, Lassie, Mayberry RFD, and The New Andy Griffith Show. In mid-November 1970, ABC announced the intent to begin cutting back on series in mid-January to be better positioned when the PTAR took effect fall of 1971. This resulted in seven cancellations, but only three mid-season replacements, an effective loss of three hours of programming. The shows canceled were The Young Rebels, Linda Day George's series The Silent Force, 
Matt Lincoln, Barefoot in the Park, The Most Deadly Game, The Variety Show, This is Tom Jones, and The Immortal. The ABC network schedule was reduced from 25 to 22 hours, with the slots released to local affiliates in January being an hour early Sunday evening, half an hour late Thursday, notably in the time slot formerly occupied by The Immortal, and a 90-minute block late Saturday evening. The cancellation of The Immortal was sudden. Prior to the announcement, news articles printed up to the day before stated the show's cancellation was far from certain and even emphasized the network's efforts to improve ratings by rescheduling the show. ABC President Leonard Goldenson held out hope for both Dan August and The Immortal in the press on Friday, November 13th, saying, Dan August and The Immortal maybe should be on earlier. The Immortal should be on earlier. The following day, however, the cancellations hit the press. Nowhere could this rapid turnaround be observed better than the November 16th issue of Broadcasting Magazine, where the cancellation announcement could be read on page 9, and the potential of the show being saved with a rescheduling mentioned on page 54. Word evidently even initially came down to Paramount that ABC would order a full season, as we've seen. Had ABC not chosen this mid-season strategy, there would have been room on the schedule to give The Immortal a full season. But in what seemed like a last-minute, reluctant decision, it was let go. Christopher George himself had opinions on the FCC's PTAR, which not only directly impacted the cancellation of his series, but also started to impact the offers he started getting the year it went into effect. I've been offered big money to shoot stuff in Canada, but it's trash. Guys are shooting quickies to take advantage of that stupid FCC rule limiting network time. How stupid can you get? Those commissioners naively think local stations are going to spend money on community documentaries, and it won't happen. The locals will buy syndicated junk, and I could make that if I wanted to. What it boils down to, the FCC is sending me to Europe or Canada to work. And George was correct. Instead of producing public affairs or educational programming, local stations typically filled this newly available time slot with purchased, syndicated content. In some TV markets, these were often reruns of Dragnet, Gilligan's Island, or other old network shows, often the cheapest available in syndication. But the top 50 TV markets were barred from airing reruns of former network shows. These affiliates would thus fill the time slot with new, first-run versions of game shows, like Hollywood Squares and Let's Make a Deal, or with magazine or entertainment format shows, such as Evening Magazine and That's Hollywood. Those selling syndicated programming, such as Westinghouse Broadcasting and Viacom, profited greatly from the PTAR, and an explosion in the production of first-run, syndicated content occurred. Shows ousted by the rural purge, such as Hee Haw, Lawrence Welk, and Wild Kingdom, found new life in syndication. And new series, such as The Muppet Show and Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, emerged. Therefore, historian Gary Edgerton stated, Despite the best of intentions, the PTAR failed in almost every respect when it was implemented in the fall of 1971. 
Although the PTAR was eliminated in 1996, it had been in place for 25 years and had become the expected scheduling format. This is why even now you will typically see Entertainment Tonight, Wheel of Fortune, and Jeopardy in this early evening time slot. The Immortal was rerun on Wednesday nights throughout the summer of 1971, where it performed well against overlapping reruns of Medical Center and Hawaii Five-O, and new episodes of The Des O'Connor Show. Years later, Don Knight recalled, When The Immortal went into reruns, it became the highest-rated show of the summer. Because of the tremendous ratings, we were told the network was considering bringing us back. Chris even went on the road and tried to get a letter campaign started to save the show. In an April 1971 interview, Chris George remarked, ABC goofed in taking it off. I think they know that. They got more mail over that cancellation than any other show. Stephen Candle even later revealed Paramount prodded ABC to consider bringing back the show. Then, when that was unsuccessful, considered taking the show to first-run syndication. But it was not to be. After the Immortal Following the Immortal, the next reference to Ben Richards popped up in an unexpected location. On the 1972 ABC Movie of the Week, The Night Stalker, when reporter Carl Kolchak explores the lair of vampire Janos Skorzeny, he opens a refrigerator to find bottles of blood stolen from the medical supply room of the local hospital. Prominently seen on the shelf inside was a bottle of donated blood with the label that read, Type O Neg, Donor, Richards, Benjamin. The label was very similar to the one seen in promotional photos for The Immortal, down to the same fonts used. It would be interesting to know the origin of this little inside reference, whether this originated with writer Richard Matheson, set decorator Fred Price, prop master Robert Anderson, or someone else. We do know both Carol Lindley and stuntman Hal Needham worked on both projects. Following series cancellation, Christopher George filmed Escape, another Paramount-produced ABC Movie of the Week that filmed in January 1971. It was the final movie of the week to air that season, airing April 6th. Escape centered around Cameron Steele, a modern escape artist who also solved crimes on the side. The telefilm was the brainchild of producer Bruce Lansbury and writer Paul Playden, and several behind-the-scenes names from The Immortal were involved in the production. The stylized opening sequence clearly indicated this was intended as a TV pilot, as confirmed by press announcements promoting the telefilm. However, Escape failed to land a spot on ABC's fall schedule, even though executives hinted at possible future development of the property, and George held out hope for mid-season or the following year. Well, we really didn't think we'd make it for this fall. It was an absolute ball to make. We all had fun. I learned how to get out of a straitjacket and handcuffs. In one scene, I was thrown 30 feet into San Pedro Bay. Paramount and Bruce Lansbury seemed to resurrect and rework the concept two years later as The Magician with Bill Bixby for NBC. 
Following Escape, George was in three additional TV movies in fairly rapid succession. Dead Men Tell No Tales and Man on a String for CBS and the heist for ABC, the 115th movie of the week. Throughout the 70s, he appeared in several theatrical films and TV episodes, many times alongside wife Linda, Mission Impossible, McLeod, Wonder Woman, The Love Boat, and Fantasy Island. The delightful couple also made many appearances together on TV game shows, as well as daytime talk shows. On Your New Day with Vidal Sassoon in 1980, Linda demonstrated her plumbing skills, and Christopher showed one of his Greek recipes. In the 1980s, George had a great on-screen death on Enter the Ninja, and also starred in the horror films Pieces and Mortuary with wife Linda. Late in the evening of October 28, 1983, George was taken to L.A.'s Westside Hospital for chest pains. He went into cardiac arrest at 3 a.m. with his wife, Linda, by his side. TV's immortal was gone at the age of only 52. Although in recent years it's been said his Rat Patrol injuries in 1967 contributed to his death, these claims seem to originate from an unsourced entry on IMDb trivia. George had known heart disease had undergone coronary bypass surgery about five years earlier and was under the care of a cardiologist. In a recent interview, Linda Day George reflected on life with husband Christopher. We completely trusted each other and had a great love. No matter what happened, we were there for each other. Chris was not a perfect person, but he was my perfect person. We talked all the time. We always made time for each other. Of course, we had arguments and disagreements just like anybody else, but we always found our way back to each other. We just absolutely loved each other, and I adored him. There was no ego, just joy. He was my precious person. Always will be. Don Knight continued to be a frequent face on television, returning to guest-starring roles on shows of the era such as Night Gallery, Bonanza, and Hawaii Five-O. He was the powder monkey Jack Peters, befriended by Charles Ingalls on a 1974 episode of Little House on the Prairie. He appeared on Forgotten TV favorites The Fantastic Journey, Cliffhangers, Voyagers, The Powers of Matthew Starr, Auto Man, and portrayed the father of Jonathan Chase in flashback and opening segments of Manimal. He also continued his calling as a minister, serving various churches in the LA area over the years. He semi-retired in 1992, living out his final years at the family home in the foothills of the Sequoia National Forest. Don Knight died following a stroke in 1997, at age 64. The Immortals author James Gunn penned an article the month following the show cancellation called An Author Watches His Brainchild Die for TV Guide, where he did a dispassionate exploration of the Hollywood process that homogenizes unique science fiction concepts. He received 125 letters of support in response to the article. His 1972 novel, The Listeners, predicted the creation of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, 
and was praised by Carl Sagan. In the late 1970s, he pitched a series to CBS called Crisis, a science fiction take on humanity dealing with existential problems like overpopulation, pollution, and terrorism. When CBS didn't bite, he later published it as a novel. In 1996, he wrote a Star Trek novel, adapting an unproduced original series episode script by Theodore Sturgeon. Gunn was also an English professor at his alma mater, the University of Kansas, for decades. In 2015, he was inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. James Gunn died in late 2020 at age 97. Robert Specht next worked on Monty Nash, an inexpensively produced first-run, syndicated 30-minute series that popped up in the fall of 1971, taking advantage of the primetime access rule. He was a writer and a story editor on the CBS Saturday morning series, Arc 2. He also penned episodes for Lucan, Knight Rider, and Airwolf. His 1976 book, Tisha, the story of a young teacher in the Alaskan wilderness, a memoir related to him by Ann Hobbs, was well-received and has been reprinted several times. Specht is one of the few people from the immortal that are still around. Now age 80, he still lives in the L.A. area with his wife. Anthony Wilson was busy following the immortal, producing several TV movies, including... The Horror at 37,000 Feet, Pray for the Wildcats, and Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. He also was responsible for bringing to TV the CBS series Cades County, NBC's Banachek, and CBS's Planet of the Apes, which depicted astronauts Burke and Verdon, along with the chimpanzee Galen, fleeing each week from General Urko. Wilson died in 1978 at age 51. Howie Horowitz next worked with Wilson on Banachek as producer and produced the TV movies Evil Roy Slade, Gene Roddenberry's The Questor Tapes, as well as a few other projects. In June 1976, while on vacation with his family at June Lake, California, he suffered a fall in an unspecified accident and died from his injuries at age 58. Stephen Kendall worked on the Bill Bixby series The Magician and about 55 other TV series and movies following The Immortal. As writer Tom Weaver put it, his resume reads like a baby boomer's dream list of must-see TV. Kendall is currently 94. While it's true The Immortal didn't live very long during its original airing, it was later broadcast in Belgium, Canada, France, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Spain, and Venezuela. It also ran on the Armed Forces Network in Europe in the 1980s and is part of the Sci-Fi Channel's series collection in the mid-1990s, which brought back short-lived genre TV series for limited runs. Robert Specht, Stephen Candle, and others recorded segments that ran as bumpers during the broadcasts. Three, one by one, the collection is displayed. If you had million-dollar blood, where would you hide? Presenting rare and special programs, the Sci-Fi Series Collection. He possessed every immunity factor in his blood. Anybody 
would want this person. Someday you'll make a mistake, and I'll get out of here. Do you hear me? Do you hear Encounter the Immortal. Tomorrow at noon Eastern. In 2017, The Immortal was licensed by boutique studio VEI for release on DVD and is still in print. The quality is surprisingly clean and sharp, especially for a 50-year-old TV show. These were clearly new transfers from well-preserved 35mm film elements. Later TV series offered differing takes on immortality, usually incorporating fantasy elements into the story. Highlander, based on the 1986 film, ran for six seasons throughout most of the 1990s and spawned two spin-off series. It featured the immortal Duncan MacLeod, as played by Adrian Paul, destined to battle other immortals for the enigmatic prize that all of them sought. The immortals could be killed only by beheading, normally at the end of a sword. The 2000 Lorenzo Lamas horror fantasy series The Immortal featured 16th century Raphael Cain pursuing the demons that killed his family into 21st century North America. It also likely not coincidentally featured quite a bit of swordplay and martial arts during its single 22-episode season. The 2014 ABC series Forever depicted Yoan Griffith as Dr. Henry Morgan, an immortal New York City medical examiner. My name is Henry Morgan. My story is a long one. Over the years, you could say I've become a student of death. I need to find a key to unlock my curse. Something happened nearly two centuries ago, and I was transformed. My life is just like yours, except for one small difference. It never ends. Morgan is over 230 years old, and if he is killed, his body disappears and he emerges alive, naked from the nearest body of water. Things get interesting when he is stalked by the mysterious Adam, who claims to be a 2,000-year-old immortal. Part fantasy and part police procedural, Forever wasn't given a chance to develop its story beyond its single 22-episode season. Although the series' run came to an end after just 15 episodes, the Immortals' run in the storyline did not, with Ben Richards' fate remaining unknown. It would be interesting to pick up this story some 50 years later in the modern day. Was he ever captured did he ever find his brother? How does he prevent being found in our modern surveillance society, where it seems Google and Facebook, much less the NSA, know what we're going to have for dinner? There's no way Richards was kept a secret from the government for long. Today, he would be pursued by every major state power and pharmaceutical corporation. He'd almost certainly have to fake his death and completely assume another identity finding a remote part of the world to hide out in until the world forgets him. This is a story that could easily resume 50 years later and would not have to limit itself to an action-chase format. The story could go in so many directions. Perhaps someone should pitch a series reboot to Viacom CBS, the current owner of the property. After all, it seems like virtually everything we grew up with is being brought back in one form or another. Until then, Ben Richards must still be out there, 
on the run or hiding out from those currently after him, who likely would even be more relentless than his original pursuers. Even if you do get down out of the mountains, how far can you go? Depends on who gives me a lift. Those good people you count on. That's right. I won't give up, Ben. And Maitland won't stop spending money. But that's all you have, and, and I don't think it'll be enough. Then keep running. But keep looking over your shoulder, because I'll be on your track. Next time on Forgotten TV... Rowdy redhead heading for the big time Looking like a Texas sequin star Making eyes at every tight jean cowboy Sassing good old boys around the bar Walls yellow she was a rowdy redhead heading for the big time, leaving behind a successful sitcom as a supporting player to strike it out on her own. Return with me to the spring of 1980, when CBS threw one mid-season replacement after another on the schedule, and one of them stuck, if only for a brief time. Dudes and darlings alike will want to tune in. Polly Holiday was Flo, next time on Forgotten TV. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to exclusive content posted, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include full-length interviews with classic TV creators and content that expands on topics presented in the main show, and promotional goodies mailed out at the end of the year. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko, who I greatly thank for their continued support, as well as producers Julio Coppa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Ralph Caracillo, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by Paramount Television, ABC, CBS Television Distribution, VEI, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. Your support of Forgotten TV through those affiliate links is much appreciated. The Immortal is the copyright and property of Paramount Television, CBS Studios, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Any audio clips included are for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. 
And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of that audio possible. Pirate Radio USA, C. Higgins, Fred Flicks, Robert C. 2009, Mr. Lalzor, Obsolete Video, My Video Classics, Kokomo Joe, Hall of Records, David Gideon, TV's Greatest, Warner Archive, All Commercials, Classic Film and TV Cafe, That's Cool, NBC Classics, SMJ Blessing 95, Mod Cinema, Vincent Dawn, and Midgard TV. Emergence by DreamState Logic is used with permission and under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Special thanks to contributor Mitch Vogel and to the research by Mark Phillips, Elaine Burasa, Tom Lasanti, Jonathan Etter, and Lee Goldberg. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books. Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. Carol Lindley, her film and TV career in thrillers, fantasy, and suspense by Tom Lasanti. Quinn Martin, producer by Jonathan Etter. The Columbia History of American Television by Gary Edgerton. Starlog Magazine, issues 185 and 186. Ebony Magazine of May 1971 and articles and blog posts at the various websites. Television Obscurities, Nighttime Recreation, John Kenneth Muir's Reflection on Cult Movies and Classic TV, TV Tropes, Mystery File, Fox News, The Historical Marker Database, The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, Starring the Computer, Moviesites.org, The Television Academy Foundation, Variety, Vanity Fair, and numerous vintage newspaper articles from newspapers.com, available on request. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV